Welcome to BC's Corner, Episode 7. Welcome back to BC's Corner. Whether this is your first episode or your seventh episode, just know that I am super glad that you were here and joining the conversation. It is February, meaning that it is Black History Month. This is a time of enhanced and targeted reflection, introspection, and celebration of the often forgotten history and accomplishments of Black men and women. Many organizations and institutions during this time of year, they present a theme for Black History Month. One being that I was presented with was Black resistance. However, the one that I have most resonated with and aligned with this year is Sankofa. Sankofa is an African word of Ghana descent. And the literal translation of this word, Sankofa, is it is not taboo to fetch what is at risk of being left behind. Another translation simply means reaching back to move forward. And it is in the spirit of Sankofa that I present my guest and topic for today's episode. For the last 25 years, Giasse Chisley has been at the forefront of the American healthcare industry as the lead for various health systems, health plans, and investment ventures. His work as a senior executive extends in various markets throughout the government, private, and Fortune 500 companies. As president and CEO, he has led many health systems in Atlanta, Georgia, if you're familiar with Wellstar, in New York City, if you're familiar with Catholic medical centers, in Cincinnati, Ohio, UC Health, and Mercy Health, in Memphis, Tennessee, Methodist Healthcare, and a national cancer network that we're all familiar with, Cancer Treatment Centers of America. Jesse has also authored a national best-selling book entitled Healthy Disruption, The Benefit and Burden of a Black Healthcare Executive. In this book, he delineates healthcare disparities and calls for the unification of healthcare leadership for continued change. And it's this work that is the foundation of our conversation today. Jayasi holds a Master's of Health and Human Services and Business Administration from the University of Michigan, as well as a dual Bachelor of Science degree in Psychology and Biology from Morehouse College. In this conversation, we not only discuss Jayasi's experience rising through the ranks of the healthcare industry, but also his philosophy on holistic health and community engagement, as well as his unique perspective on the healthcare industry and its future. Without further ado, let's dive into conversation with Giassi Chisley. This conversation has been a long time coming, and I am super thankful to have you, Giassi Chisley, on the podcast. I am grateful that you said yes, uh, that you made time for this. You're currently, uh, you're recording this in Atlanta. I'm here in Chicago, but it's super cool to be connected with you. And we've been connected now for about a year. When knowing you, when being introduced to you and having a, a first conversation with you, understanding that you had spent 25 years as a chief administrator, a chief executive leader in the healthcare industry, truly running the gamut, uh, serving, you know, one as the president and CEO, many people would know, you know, Cancer Treatment Centers for America, being the senior vice president of strategy at United Healthcare, just to name a couple of the health systems that you've served in this country. And I look at that career and I also look at your origins. We have that similarity and that we both come from Southeastern Wisconsin, New Milwaukee, myself, Racine. And I ask you, like, when you look at your career, when you see that past 25 years and then the work that you're doing now, how have you embraced that trajectory? Does it feel like it always would? Or has it been sort of a 
a combination of, you know, fate, universe, God, and also your hard work and really just allowing things to play out? Yeah. So, so it's a, it's an excellent question and, and thanks uh, so much for it and for you, uh, Brian, I am so grateful and thankful just to, to echo what you said in, in your beginning here to be connected to you. So congratulations, not only on this podcast, but everything that you're doing, it is a joy and such a, a, a blended, very spiritual for me to kind of see what you are, are doing. And it's, it certainly serves as inspiration. So thanks so much. And believe me, I, I don't believe in coincidences. Uh, it's, it, it was very serendipitous and fortuitous for us to meet like you said, we've been connected now for nearly 18 months, almost two years. And it has been, again, I think very, very inspirational for me to kind of see what you're doing. So great to be on the podcast and with you. you. I think that serves sort of in points as a, uh, as a reminder uh, of my career is that it has been, they say that the good steps of a, of a man are ordered by the Lord. And uh, I, I don't pretend or portend to be a good man per se, but I know that I've got some major tailwinds behind me with, you know, the ancestors, the universe, and of course, God, uh, that has sort of led me to this point. And now, obviously, being in healthcare for 25 years, sort of seeing the universe, if you will, of healthcare, the ecosystem, I'll call it, has been such a blessing uh, because because I've, I've, I've gotten keener insight to every role that I've had pretty much, you know, from five regional health systems that I've led as president and CEO and one national niche to more so the dark side of healthcare, like you mentioned, United Health Group, uh, as it relates to insurers uh, and how they are perceived in, in the marketplace, in the healthcare marketplace, and then going over into the private equity and now working, you know, in the likes of Wall Street for a major bank. It has certainly enlightened me to different aspects and diasporas uh, as it relates to healthcare. Um, and I do believe that healthcare is a microcosm of the American society. So it's something that that you know, with healthcare being the largest, the absolute largest sector in our in our country, more than we spend more than in healthcare than any other sector or any other industry in America, more than education, more than defense. Literally, four point three trillion dollars was spent last year uh, and growing, continuing to grow. It is something that we need need to to highlight, look at, and and actually uh, make sure that we're we're revealing some of the disparities that continue to exist, especially for people of color in this country. So I say all that to say, my career has been, I think, an amalgamation of wonderful blessings, great people, and a lot of effort and hard work. You know, I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box, but I've met some people that have really, really, truly inspired me, just like you. Was healthcare always the goal? You know, uh, it has been. It, it is, uh, you know, obviously the, the first goal was, was to play in the NBA. I am a recovering point guard, uh, college point guard, where I played basketball uh, in my undergrad youth. From then, uh, healthcare has always been top of mind. Uh, it, it initially started with a mentor of mine in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Dr. William Finlayson, who, was a physi- who is a physician, retired physician now, at 95 years young. Uh, yeah, exactly. And he uh, served as a mentor for me in high school and all throughout college uh, and, and had an a instrumental effect on my life. And I wanted to follow in his footsteps. Uh, but then I sort of got to see the opportunity, I think, that, that exists within healthcare administration uh, during my uh, junior and senior year of undergrad and really started to work toward a career, not only in, in healthcare, but healthcare aspects, investments, business, et cetera. So it has been on the docket in the plan for many, many years. 
And one of the things that you point at in your book, and I don't want to dive way too into it right now, but you talk a lot about exposure and how you wanting to go into healthcare, you just mentioned it there when you were talking about your mentor, was because of the access and exposure that you got to a space where not many of us exist, specifically in administration and executive leadership. When I would love to speak more to your undergrad, you mentioned it there, you went to Morehouse and it's an HBCU. And I've had a previous guest on who went to an HBCU. I did not go to an HBCU. I went to a PWI, primarily a white institution. And there is a hundred percent a difference by the way a person who goes to an HBCU talks about their college experience versus how I talk about my, at times, my college experience. Can you speak to the value of going to an HBCU, specifically what, you know, being a Morehouse man means to you? My pastor, I would say, the church that I go to here in Chicago, he went to Morehouse and he we had a baby dedication on Sunday and he literally took the baby. He was being funny and he was like, you're going to go to Morehouse College. And there's such a pride there. So I'd love for you to speak to that. There is. It's everything to me, Brian. Um, You know, I didn't realize the impact that Morehouse had on me until I actually graduated. It was because it's indelible impact as well. And it was because the advice, the insights all of the nurturing that I received. I I, I tell people all the time, I'm very fond of both my alma maters. One is Morehouse, two is Michigan. And I say, Morehouse is where I became a man. uh, Mm Michigan is where I became a leader. And they always say, you know, whoever they is again, they say that you can always tell a Morehouse man, but you can't tell them much. So I I think that (laughs) I I follow in those, uh, (laughs) in that regard and that sentiment only because, you know, just the confidence that I gained, everything that I was sort of taught And it was a very bespoke experience, meaning that it was very customized for me. So my experience at Morehouse was probably very different than, you know, anybody else's experience, which is fantastic. And I think that's what college should be. College is all about exposure and and college isn't for everybody. And nor do I think, you know, education usually indoctrinates some sort of training, if you will. And I'm using air quotes so that your audience can hear and see me. And education should not, in my mind, be about a training. It should be about exposure, exactly what you said. So I just think that, you know, there was just tremendous opportunities for exposure all throughout my four years in Atlanta and uh, at Morehouse and just got a, just got a wonderful experience. So it's who I am. It's, it, it, you can't separate it. And one fun fact is, you know, I, I, I quote King all the time and it, uh, Martin Luther King, and it was just, you know, just a wonderful presence about him that Mm -hmm. to me still exists at Morehouse. You know, there's two major figures at Morehouse that really, I think, propelled it into where it is today. Uh, One is obviously Martin Luther King, but the other is Benjamin Elijah Mays, who was uh, president for almost uh, 30 years at Morehouse. And King uh, once wrote two things that that I've always stuck with me. Uh, The most pressing and urgent question for any, for all of humanity is what are you doing for others? And I think that speaks to who I am and why I got into healthcare. And then he also said of all the injustices in the world, healthcare by far is the most inhumane. So again, that has sort of shaped who I am, not only as a man, not only as a leader, but certainly as Morehouse man, as I sort of propel throughout society. So then growing up in southeastern Wisconsin, Milwaukee, predominantly yes. black area, to then going yes. to Morehouse, a, pri- a, a primarily black area, but black excellence, you know, you're really getting poured into, you're really nurtured, you're really in a cocoon. You then come out of that, you go to Michigan to get your second degree, but then you go into an industry where 
there aren't many of us around. What was that experience like? Because I've I've heard some folks say like, yeah, you go to an HBCU and you're you're coddled and you're nurtured and you're around you know black culture twenty four seven. And when you move out of there, you're not necessarily going to PG County, Prince George's County, Maryland, where you know That's highest right. per capita income you know for black families. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I've heard that same call it argument, if you will, and, and nothing could be further from the truth, in my opinion. Because, you know, through all in and throughout my high school experience, I went to a pretty much predominantly black high school, uh, part of NPS, Milwaukee Public Schools, and it was literally about 92% black and then probably 7 to 8% Latino. So it was tremendously sort of homogeneous as it related to people of color and, and in a pretty uh, deprived area within Milwaukee. That being said, obviously, I went to, on the flip side, went to to Morehouse, and I got to see so much Black affluence. I think mm. it wasn't just the the excellence part. It was the affluence. I, I didn't know that Black people had money until I went to Morehouse. Um, I didn't know that Black people had such great careers until I went to Morehouse. I didn't know uh, Black people came from great families until I went to Morehouse uh, and had just a, a strong pedigree uh, within and from themselves. Uh, so that was that was eye-opening for me. And it's sort of where I, I sort of got to see the greater diaspora that exists within the Black community and culture. To me, it wasn't a coddling. It, it goes back to, you know, being exposed to not just necessarily the Black community, but how those Black people navigated society and became who they were. So, uh, and then, like you said, going to Michigan, which is 40,000 plus students in Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan, and got two degrees from there, you know, it was almost a yo-yo effect. I did see that tried to emulate what I learned at Morehouse and then had to navigate utilizing the tools that I, that I gleaned and gained at Morehouse and then had to navigate a PWI. And then obviously going into a career that is literally almost all male and all pale. Um, so it, 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 it is uh, certainly been enlightening for me. And I, I use Morehouse all the time as sort of that launching pad, that springboard, that catalyst uh, that catapulted me further and farther than I could ever imagine. And you, you spoke to something that I loved. You said not only was it Black excellence at Morehouse, but you saw Black affluence. And seeing that there are Black people across this country, across this world, that the effects of slavery, the Civil War, redemption, reconstruction, Jim Crow, civil rights, we all had different starting points. There were the, right. you know, people who were freed who then got to have a good foundation, to have a good start, to be educated further down. So we're seeing kind of the generational start of that, depending on your family, you know, that's go right. either way. And I thought that that's another thing, not diving into your book just yet, that I think you lay out pretty well. And we'll revisit those in just a second. Uh, okay. You say in your book that even with your accomplishments as an executive in the healthcare industry, that you have yet to be treated as an equal executive particularly at the onset of any new role that you've had. And you've consistently said that you've had to explain your background, your qualifications, you have multiple degrees. At this point, you know, you could run for president, I think. Uh, <laughs> but speak more to that that sense of having to, to prove yourself. Yeah, and I, th I think the, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And I think one of the things that particularly Black executives, and I'll even uh, take it a step further, Brian, and, and, and maybe you will agree and we're aligned here, uh, black male executives oftentimes, in my opinion, have to 
you know, they're not given the benefit of the doubt at the onset of whatever role that they're taking, you know, whether that's an executive level role or whether that's a manager or whether that's just a new job uh, starting out at, you know, you name uh, your favorite fast food joint. Um, there is a narrative that is always inextricably tied to a black man in society. And that's been my experience. And it was cathartic for me to write the book because it, it, it sort of exposed that, you know, while I'm all in my head, getting those thoughts out, there's a lot of alignment with other black males that have, have experienced that. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we started to think about the manuscript. So I say that to say, you know, going through and again, navigating corporate America now uh, as an executive, as a CEO, the title really doesn't mean anything. I actually appreciate that the title doesn't. I don't care if you're a chief executive or chief janitor. It it really sort of speaks to who you have to be as a person. And again, going back to my childhood, going back to Morehouse, going back to Michigan, it really requires, I think, a sense of self. Uh, it really requires an opportunity to really sit with who you are and be comfortable in your own skin. And I don't think if you don't have that, if you have those insecurities and we all have them, uh, I think they're highly exposed when you do become, you know, sort of at a chief executive level position, uh, because it's very lonely. Uh, I will say one of the things that I say all the time, uh, and it's a song uh, that actually a line that Drake has in one of his songs is that I'm never alone, but I always feel alone. Hmm. Uh, because you are actually leading something. If you're doing a great job, what you say, what you do isn't always the popular thing, uh, but what you say and what you do is strategic. And it, you sell it, if you communicate it the right way, people will follow you. You know, it doesn't matter what you say. It matters what you can sell. I, I always say, so there's a lot of think opportunity to kind of learn who you are, learn sense of self, uh, in the spirit of Sankofa, which we talk about in the book and, and not only having that sense of self, but then communicating that sense of self for the people that are coming behind you, I think is, is really, really, really critical, especially in these days and times. I mean, there's so much uncertainty in the world, not only from a, a banking perspective, inflation perspective, but just who we are as a society. I think yeah. there's, there's just tremendous value in understanding who you are. And I think that's where it starts. And now turning to your book, uh, Healthy Disruption, The Benefit and Burden of a Black Healthcare Executive in America. Whenever I look at a book, I look at a script, I always think about the title. And <laughs> I, I was going to go after healthy disruption but and go after what did you mean by that? But I'm going to trust that the audience will pick it up fairly easily. I want to talk about the, the benefit, but then the burden of a Black healthcare executive in America. Speak to the burden that you carried or that you have carried and probably have released by now. You tell me. And I'll say continue to carry. And I know the, the title is a mouthful. So thanks for, <laughs> for, for saying that. And, and, and I'll say, you know, it, it was intentional. I, I try to do everything with intention. I don't always succeed in that. Brian, the title is very intentional, even from healthy disruption, because I believe I'm, I'm a big believer. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lexicon junkie. I love words. I love the English language. I'm trying to learn it as quickly and as fast as I can, because I think it has wonderful origins and is organic in nature. And the title, Healthy Disruption, is an oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp. To me, there cannot be healthy disruption, particularly in this society. And that's something that we examine in the book. But the benefit and burden of a Black healthcare executive in America, I'll take the, the benefit first. 
there's tremendous benefit to being a black leader because I think just at our core, and I'll use the word, one of my favorite words again in the English language is organic. From our organic state, we have deep empathy for humanity. And I think if we're really, again, being true to ourselves and examine that empathy and not only examine it, but also display it, particularly in healthcare, and that's what healthcare needs, is empathy and compassion. I think we have a keen insight and can can lead the masses to where healthcare needs to go. So that's the benefit, in my mm-hmm. opinion. The burden are many, uh, and I continue to hold that burden. So it's not just something that I get to look at and, and revere and say, oh, gosh, I'm glad I got through that. It is something that I that I deal with, I think, daily, if not hourly, pretty much on every call, every meeting. That is something that I carry. And the burden is, I guess, in a nutshell, is that there's not many of us in healthcare. There's certainly not many of us that are doing things that are unconventional or non-traditional. You know, we sort of go through these various steps and get to a manager director or director position. Then we go to VP and then we go to COO and then we go to CEO. And I think there's tremendous comfort in that. But I always say comfort is synonymous with complacency. And I think a lot of our black executives have been complacent uh, for quite some time. We talk about that in the book as part of the seven C's as well, which we'll hopefully dive into. So there's a lot of things that I think need to be disrupted in order for us to advance not only healthcare, but society as well. Because again, I'll say it again, the American healthcare system is a microcosm of American society. And you say in your book, to speak to your point about black leaders, you say, and I'm quoting this, uh, as black leaders, our work is never complete. It is our responsibility to keep the work going, even when some of us may not see the need to do so. This reality makes many Black leaders anxious, but it is necessary if we are ever going to realize equality. And I put in equity. I'm editing. I'm kidding. (laughs) Equality and equity in this country. That that was the BNC version. But equity in this country. Speak to that that need for forward progression, because some would look at how far we've gotten. And someone listening to this, you know, I have a lot of uh, people from different backgrounds listen to the show. And there, there is so much forward progression, specifically to the Black experience in America. I uh, did a write-up for my company for Black History Month, and I, and I gave them a quote. And I was like, you know, the America that my grandparents grew up in, who were sharecroppers in Mississippi, who are 90 uh, years old and 88 years old now, is very different than the America I got to experience. Them with no education, me getting to go to college, and it was assumed that I would go and graduate and go off to live a good life. That's a different America and even a different America for the America that I hope for my grandkids, my kids. And so I think there's hope in the future. But what would you say for the continued work? Great question. So, so insightful, Brian. And I think, again, that's where we're so simpatico is that uh, I come from, you know, literally three generations removed from slavery. My grandfather actually was a sharecropper in Mississippi. Obviously, my mother was born in Mississippi and in sort of the backwoods of a plantation. So there's just that innate, like I'm not that far removed. And one of the greatest compliments that I've received um, that, that I don't know that I deserve by writing the book and some of the other things that, that I've experienced in my career is that one gentleman said to me that the ancestors are smiling at you. Um, and that just warmed my heart. What I would say, what I would say is that while there's that sort of smile, there is that sort of dichotomy on the flip side that exists that I see, you know, even my grandfather saying like, boy, you've come so far. And I quote him all the time. I quote him a lot in the book, if you read the book, but I also see that 
gosh, we've got so much for, so far to go. And I don't mean to impugn any of your audience that is listening that are Not part of all. the baby boom generation or the traditionalists because they have certainly paved the way and I stand on their shoulders, make no bones about it uh, all day long, twice on Sunday. But I think for me, what pains me and keeps me up at night and continues to, you know, have my ulcer exacerbate because I do have one, the progress seems so fragile. And I think that was one of the things that uh, was my epiphany during the protests and in 2020 is that, you know, we have come very, very far from being slaves and everything else. The advancements to me just seem almost as if they're hollow. And it goes back to the narrative of black people in the country. It goes back to actually destroying glass ceilings that seem to exist, still persist in this country uh, and in healthcare. And it just seems like it could be taken away in an instant. And that is something I've got a 14 year old daughter and she's 14 going on 40 but that's one of the things that that I am very afraid for her is that, you know, the one of the things that you don't ever want to see, especially as a father trying to raise a, a girl, is you didn't ever want to see your daughter's heart broken. And I just feel like as though I, that's something that I'm never going to be able to prevent. And I'm not talking about from a romantic perspective or her liking boys or anything else, because we know that that'll probably happen. I'm talking about her trust in society. And she serves as my hero. In fact, I dedicated the book to her. I know I just see that she's got this wonderful trust in humanity. And I don't want that to her forever to lose that. But I also see the ugliness. I've experienced a lot of ugliness in this country, um, not only from a disparities perspective or discrimination, but just from people. Once you put a highlight, something that is wrong, quite frankly, and, and John Lewis spoke about getting into good trouble, you definitely put a target on your back. And I have felt that for 25 plus years now. So that's where I am. And that's how I feel. And it feels as though at times, Brian, that I am um, being pessimistic or more even contrived, or I've got some just sinister or ulterior motive in what I say and what I do and how I speak. But it's literally just the opposite. Um, This book, my entire career is a love letter to healthcare. And like you just said, I have been uh, admiring healthcare in the industry, you know, more than half my life. Um, and that is something that I'm dedicated to. Healthcare is my ministry. It is it's my passion. It's how I the, the only way I know how to affect and impact social change. So in that regard, uh, and Jay Z said, you can't heal what you don't reveal. So mm-hmm. I'm literally just trying to reveal everything that I've seen, so that we can be better as an industry, we being healthcare, and and have a better society for it. And so to your book, you wrote it in 2020 during the onset of the George Floyd riots, the pandemic, really kind of this uh, inflection point where all hell was breaking loose, everything was on fire. And so everything was just even more, a little bit more fragile. And in reading it, I say it's part autobiographical, like we get to know (laughs) a lot about you. I say it's part uh, a history, an anthology. I went through and I talked I, I talked about slavery. I talked about the Civil War. I talked about redemption, which is actually reconstruction and then redemption. Uh, reconstruction being the period post-Civil War when we were trying to cultivate this multiracial democracy. You still had Northern troops occupying the South. And then Absolutely. you see a flip 
in the matter of a, less than a decade, uh, where right. we had a period of time where there are Black legislators. There, we're starting to see a lot of growth. And then you see Jim Crow to emerge in the South. Those Northern troops are now, they go back North. We're now trying to be a nation whole again. And then you see the emergence of really this sickness, this evil arising in the South, which then is Jim Crow. And then right. you go into the Jim Crow era, and then you go into the civil rights movement. I kind of did a little bit of a history lesson there for some of you who are not familiar with that history. That's history, actually, that I didn't get to learn until I went to college because they had a class for African-American studies. And of course, I'm going to take it. And that's the kind of history that many people in this country aren't familiar of. And I know that that's a hot topic these days because history <laughs> is debated. Uh, but that's Critical the race theory. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those are the things I think you need to know to have a, a holistic view of this country. But you open your book citing facts, specifically the Institutes of Medicine in 2001. They released Crossing the Quality Chasm. And this report clearly documented the healthcare disparities, specifically between Black and white communities. So Blacks were clearly being underserved underreported. Okay. We're going to underreport it, underprotected. We're going to, that's the conclusion. And (laughs) the quality chasm though is not just in genetics. Like, you know, I'm used to like in our community, the black community, like, Oh, I got a little sugar. Oh, I got to watch that. You know, we got the diabetes (laughs) and it's kind of like this, um, this misnomer around health, our education around health, but you point that it's not just your genetics, it's your surroundings, it's your zip code. And using Chicago as an example, you say that your quality of life can actually be determined more by your zip code than it can by, you know, what they find in your blood. Living in Chicago, you know, I live in Lincoln Park and the quality of life in Lincoln Park is different than Bronzeville, which is where the church that I attend, a historic black church is there in Bronzeville. And now the local government is trying to pump more investment in that area. Uh, But you frame your argument around the solution, the problem and the solution for an equitable healthcare system by using the seven C's, one of them being culture. Specifically speaking to culture, you say in your book, slavery and discrimination and their related injustices have cast a long shadow over the African-American families. You speak to the stressors and trauma that generations have faced. Very similar to some, if someone's you know father, putting it in perspective, uh, was an alcoholic, there are things from that situation that will carry onward into the child's life, to their way of being. In your own life, you mentioned your mother as the stabilizing force that helped steer you forward. And when it comes to the breakdown of the family, because we're coming at healthcare holistically here, when it comes to the breakdown of the family, which is the breakdown of the community at large, you say that we should not wait for private entities or the government to come rushing in to save us, but to trust the individuals in those communities to tell us what they need and to rise up. And my push-pull there is, is that the most effective way to see real change? Because I don't live in Bronzeville, but I'm I'm considering it, actually. I mean, I don't live in Bronzeville. <laughs> I'm considering it because I, I feel like how I can want to benefit that community all day long. But the truth is, I don't live there. And I'm not directly right. impacted by anything that's going on there. And is it, in a sense, like trusting the person who's in the house that's on fire to get out of the house that's on fire uh, and then build a new house? I love that sort of how you set that up and frame that, Brian, because obviously you get it. And again, we're aligned there, but for taking us back and just unpacking your yeah. comments there, because they're they're so apropos and so cogent and timely. You know, the book we had, I think, to establish, you know, who I was as a person. 
so you mentioned sort of some some autobiographical essence there, but it again is just to help people align on my sort of where I come from and my perspective, my lens, 100%. if you will. And then to your point, we definitely have to talk about again the black experience in this country. You sort of did a great job sort of summarizing exactly what we examine in the book and the, the ebbs and flows, if you will, very unfortunate and disparate ebbs and flows of black culture, the black experience in this country. So we had to examine that. And then that gets to, okay, here's where we are today. And let's break that down. And part of the most important C in the seven C's and the seven C's just for everybody's benefit is an opportunity to sort of get to solutions because we just don't want to frame the problem. We want to get to solutions. And that's what the seven C's are at least designed to do. By the way, let me say, um, first and foremost, you know, if you've read the book, if you are thinking about purchasing the book, you know, and you don't like the book, it's, I think it's $20 on, on Amazon. I will refund your money because we are not trying to get to, and this is not about me. It's more so about us. Uh, again, in the spirit of Sankofa, how do we get to a better society for people of color in this country? The first C culture is the biggest one. Uh, and I like to say all the time, culture, Trump strategy, and we could have the best laid plans. Uh, but I think it was Mike Tyson that said, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Right. And we've certainly got punched not only in the mouth, but the gut and everything else as a society, as a people in this country. So uh, I say all that to say, yes, the biggest and the most valuable gift that anybody could ever give you is feedback. What do you have to do to receive that gift? You have to listen. And I think, you know, for people that experiencing that high disparity, that high health disparity uh, that exists between, let's call it, because I'm, I'm very fond of Chicago. I was actually born in Chicago, raised in Milwaukee. My family is still in the Bronzeville area, 47th okay. Kings, so shout out, shout, shout out to the South Side. That, <laughs> that being said, we're literally talking about an 84-block radius that exists between the North Side and the South Side, essentially. So that's roughly seven miles or so, maybe 6.5 miles. But there is a 33-year life expectancy gap that exists from the north side to the south side. So you are, if you live and come from the north side, you are likely to live 33 years longer than your counterpart on the south side. That is remarkable. Uh, so per square capita, Chicago has that largest life expectancy gap. And of course, Chicago gets a bad rap with some of the murders that have occurred. Uh, but literally, those murders are within a 16 block radius that it, that pretty much exists within Inglewood and some of those other areas. And, and again, that is a cry for help. Uh, and in order for to understand that, you've got to actually be in that community, listen to the people that are trying to make ends meet in that community, and then do something about it. And I like to say, take that, what you're learning, and utilize them as sort of the sounding board, but even the tools for actually exacting that change. So there has to be a lot of it. One of the other things that the other sees is coalition building yeah. through partnerships. You could actually build a lot of that. So not to expose too much, but I really, really wanted to kind of delve deeper into what you just said, because it's it's absolutely spot on. But then how are we activating the people that live like in my view? Are you expecting the people that live in those communities? Are they the ones buying your book? Are they the ones that are going to read your book? Because they're the ones that need to be, you know, in your words, activated in order to change their circumstances, in order to elevate their lifestyle? Yeah, great question. I don't know, is the short answer. Uh, I, I certainly hope so. It is my aim to get that proliferated to the masses. But I do think it's, you know, for those that 
are not in those communities and have read that book, or read the book, or shared the same sentiment like you and I, uh, I think it's incumbent on us to start to think about, you know, what am I doing? Even if I do live, you know, north side of Chicago, east side of Detroit, west side of Houston, you know, there is tremendous opportunity to get to those communities and try to work with those people again, going back to partnerships and coalition building, and really making sure that we strive for more. The other thing that I'll say, Brian, just to that point. And help me pressure test this. I'd love feedback from your audience. You know, there's a difference, an inherent difference between equity and equality. And you sort of even mentioned it when you were reading an excerpt from the book is that, you know, I do not believe in my lifetime that I will ever see health equality or even equality period in a society. Right. And that's not something that I think that we should strive for. I do believe in equity, though, uh, and health equity for me is a sense of ownership. It's just like owning a stock or a bond or owning a, a certain specific area in a company or some other thing. It is opportunity to actually have ownership in a community, ownership in real estate, ownership in something that is pushing and promoting that change. That's where we can sort of get to a platform that you can see equality. So it's almost like uh, planting a tree you sort of plant the seeds through equity and hopefully the, that tree will rise, will grow and then provide shade for generations to come as that is sort of, and, and that's something that's tangible that you can hand down to the next generation through equity. And that ultimately, in my opinion, gets to equality, but this certainly serves as a precursor. So, then, so that to me is how you get to sort of that community change. And so I wanted to clarify just the definition because you use equity a lot in the book and it's really one of the foundations for your argument, uh, not just yes. pointing out the problem, but also the solution. And to clarify, it's equity that you're referring to as an ownership because the, the other definition of equity would be fairness. Meaning Absolutely. That, you know, <laughs> so are they used interchangeably or is one more the dominant definition that you're using for your argument? One is certainly more dominant, and it is the from the ownership perspective. So look at it from my lens, and then uh, you know now being, uh, I guess, a banker and, and and rubbing elbows with with the likes of Wall Street. That is how I look and view the world. Is that you know if you actually own something in this in this world, you have equity or stock in it, um, and I do believe. If you have that equity, then you care about it a little bit more. And, and, and by the way, health and care, do they necessarily go together? I think you first have to care about your health or about one's health to actually get into health care. There's an, another thing that sort of portends another definition. The equity from a, a quality standpoint, for me, just doesn't yet exist. It's more of a destination. And I think we're, we're right now on a journey to get to equity. So then how does that fit into your belief and my belief as well in a capitalistic society? How does that come into play where we need a free market? We need competition. Someone needs to lose in order for there to be a top. There has to be a bottom. Uh, can right. you explain that a bit more? And I know you can. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a question that I get often. I'm a big believer in, you know, that I'm so first of all, capitalism is something that I certainly support. You know, I've been in in different societies. I've gone to Cuba and China and some other countries that are more socialistic uh, in nature. And I do believe that capitalism, because it promotes competition and usually the best idea, concept, innovation, innovators win. That mm -hmm. is usually true in a capitalistic society that is first has a lot of equality or is equitable at the start. 
We're not dealing with that, though. <laughs> so in a capitalistic society like America, you have a sense of the pie, but the pie is certainly sliced in different areas. And usually the privileged, which we talk about and examine in the book, those that have gotten a greater head start or a first mover advantage, if you will, those are the, the folks that actually are ahead of the curve, if you will, and have a bigger slice of the pie. What we need to do as a society is not think of the pie as being sliced but grow the pie as much as possible so that everybody can win. Um, and that's an opportunity, I think, for us, again, going back to equity and what it means, is really making sure that we're investing in our own communities, that we're investing in our own companies, that we're investing in our own concepts, that we're promoting us first and foremost, and then we win. Because I think one of the offshoots of a segregated society was that we had to build, buy, and promote our own. When we started to get into integration, that sort of changed and changed the construct a little bit. I think we have to make sure that we're doing that a little bit more moving into 2023 and beyond if we're actually going to achieve any fairness in, in this country. And like I said, it is a journey. It's not a destination. So then I have a question regarding, in a sense, the way that the argument is framed, because we talk about access, we talk about exposure, we talk about information, we talk about opportunity. We'll speak more to those and, and how you use them in the book in a second. Specifically framing the argument as Black communities are underserved. Yes. Uh, in a sense, someone would, would hear that argument and say that, yeah, there are poor white people too, and there are poor Hispanics, and there are poor Asians. So it shouldn't this dynamic be class-based and not race-based? And I think in a way you've married the two, but could you speak to that? Yeah, I can. And I do think there's two things that I always think of when that question is posed. One is a quote by Malcolm X that, that said, you know, the greatest issue in our lifetime will be class and not based on race. Uh, and I certainly agree with that. And then it was King. And, and I think it was, you know, Martin Luther King that was really working toward three things toward the latter part of his life and the civil rights movement. One was obviously race uh, and inequities there. Right. Two was the the poor people's campaign, and yeah. three was the Vietnam War and just war. Period. People um, often forget I, that about King, not absolutely. just anti-racist, but anti-poverty, anti. That's, that's what right. made him unpopular. <laughs> that's what made him unpopular. Ultimately, was the the catalyst for his assassination, and we can talk about that. But that being said, I think one of the things that I like to do is is try to first build some black unity and Black coalitions and partnerships so that we can expand. And again, going back to that sort of deepening benefit that we have as leaders, expand that empathy into people or things that we've already endured. So Black people have always, in my opinion, and in this country have been at a disadvantage since slavery. You know, so that the ebbs and flows, as you mentioned, uh, during Reconstruction and some of the other things that we've done, there was always, again, that the burning desire... State. Yeah. The hand of the state. Thank you. Uh, well said that that could really critically just impact us in a negative fashion very, very quickly. So that being said, I think we have an opportunity to coalesce uh, together first and then expand that to a greater population that certain, um, can identify with what we've been through as, as a culture and as a society, as black people in this country. So, yes, I do think that it should be expanded, but I think we've got to first have that platform for ourselves uh, so that we can expand it in a, in a very strategic fashion. And, and your book is filled with acronyms. You have an acronym for everything. 
And you say that that I can remember it. (laughs) Yeah. You say that that's your way of, uh, and I think that's interesting just to get a peek into how your mind works of like, that's the way that you remember things. It's helped me too in preparation for this, but, and as a reader, but you say A E I O U that, and you mark that as one of the potential solutions for the way forward. And really uh, I talked about your book being autobiographical, historical in nature, but then also it's a call to action. And I think AEIOU, uh, I truly believe, sets up the wheel that needs to spin in order yes. for people to go from novices to activists uh, or from yes. novices to advocates, I would say. The AEIOU is access, exposure, information, opportunity, and then you. Can you go through that one, actually? Give them a yeah, little taste I- of it. Yeah, thank you for that. And again, it is it is in my mind sequenced appropriately. And it's you know how we learn the the vowels of the alphabet in the English language. But it is first in my mind about access. So if we have an opportunity to expand our horizons, I'm, I'm talking we as Black people, as Black culture, as Black society, have an opportunity to expand our resources, expand our reach, become exposed. Right. So first access, then become exposed and then utilize that exposure to gain as much info as possible, because information is the underlying impact of a capitalistic society. The more info you have, the actual more money you can make. And we can examine that as well. So information is key. Then if you've got the right opportunities based on that, utilizing those opportunities well and effectively and make it what am I going to do about that now having and being equipped with all of those things, then you can actually become an activist, get into an underserved community, whether you live there or not, and start to make effective change and impact change. So for me, it is, it's sequenced appropriately. Uh, and something that we just sort of examine in the book, but it's hopefully your readers will appreciate that and make sure that they're utilizing it maybe for, uh, for them to activate their own sort of compassion, whether it be within healthcare, whether it be in business or or some other education or some other industry within our within our society. Now turning specifically to healthcare, because you do talk a mm-hmm. lot about healthcare in America, and you are uh, an advocate for universal healthcare. And mm-hmm. I'm taking uh, these statistics from a 2020 research pew because that's when you were writing the book. Yep. But 63 percent of people in the United States, adults, say that the government has the responsibility to provide healthcare coverage for all. And, and we look at the history of attempting to get to this point, and it's nothing new. It comes up all the time. You know, Roosevelt right. in 1993, he tried it, specifically trying to get um, provisions added to the Social Security bill and ended up getting dismissed. Uh, Truman in 1949 proposed universal health care. Did not happen, clearly. Lyndon B. Johnson, who actually his death 50 years ago yesterday was the anniversary, but he created Mm. Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, Medicare being for old people, Medicaid being for those of lower income that could be covered. And that's kind of as significant at that point. And then you have Jimmy Carter, who also ran on it. Everyone seems to run on it. (laughs) Tried it in 1993. And then you have the Affordable Care Act, which, you know, increased access, expanded coverage. Uh, It did increase Medicare. It did a lot of things through subsidies that I think actually impacted a lot of people and gave a lot of people affordable coverage so that they could have something. Uh, I remember 
moving to Chicago as an actor. People know my story, uh, being a barista, being an Instacart shopper at the same time and finishing up my degree and not having healthcare coverage. I don't come from a very privileged background. And I remember being sick once and I went into a Northwestern clinic thing and I don't have, I didn't have insurance. So I'm, I'm like, Lord, I, I don't know how these people going to look at me or treat me. And <laughs> yep. they wanted a $500 deposit you know, just to be seen, whether, you know, they would have just told me I had a cold or not, but they were going to take that much. And I was going to lose all of it, obviously, just from that visit. And so I ended up getting, making an excuse, getting up and leaving because of that scenario in my life. And so I ask you, when it comes to where we've gotten with the Affordable Care Act and kind of the history politically of universal health care, where do you think the mark is being missed? Because there are some that say, you know, the Affordable Care Act, it goes too far, which I don't think holds up when you look at the facts of what it really does. But where is the mark being missed? Yeah, it's a a great question. Boy, you certainly do your homework, Brian. I love that because you just walked us through. And again, with some of that is is outlined and delineated in the book as well, uh, sort of the history behind, quote unquote, healthcare. And again, I'm using uh, air quotes if you guys can see me that exists and persists in this country and, and, and you've walked us through it. So um, that Pew study that, that we cite in the book uh, where 63% of the adults sort of say that the government should have a very healthy hand in actually promoting and, and providing health care for, for individuals in this country. I actually think that that would be higher if the public, you know, John Q consumer knew what the government does for their health care or what it does provide. So, you know, I, I always liken it to a story that I often hear, and I've heard this probably three dozen times in my career, which is, is way too many, is that people will say, like, I hate the government being tied to healthcare. The government should just stay out of it. I don't want any type of government entities in my healthcare or my healthcare decisions. But don't you take away my Medicare. I love Medicare (laughs) Uh, and just people not even understanding what Medicare is. And that, to your point, was passed by Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah, passed by Lyndon B. Johnson in uh, 65, I think, uh, with the Social Security Act, that the government is for especially for the elderly, especially for the underserved by way of Medicaid providing health care for those types of people. Again, I hear that all the time is that people don't like their decisions being quote unquote made by the government, but it is there. They've had a hand in it for uh, literally seven decades plus. So that being said, you know, I think we've got the passing of the, the 65 social security act 50 years later in 2010, uh, president Obama passes the affordable care act as <laughs> I'll quote our current president now, as Biden said, as vice president, then uh, this is a big effing deal. And I don't want to curse because uh, (laughs) your audience will get a sense of who I am. But it it was a very, very big deal because to your point, it was by far the largest legislation that we've ever passed in this country for a healthcare uh, entity or act by way of the government. Uh, And it definitely expanded. So when we when when Obama passed that, it was again in March of 2010. So literally, we've had it now in place for uh, 13 years plus, wow. um, yeah. almost almost 13 years plus, wow. uh, and it has passed numerous objections, I think 39 to it be exact, of it trying to be degraded or repealed in some form or fashion. But that being said, Brian, like there is, when that was passed, we had, I think, 46 million individuals that did not have health care coverage 
probably sounds like you were one of them. I was certainly one of them when I was in college. I didn't have health care coverage. Uh, and again, the ACA not only expands Medicaid, but also allows for individuals to be on their parents' insurance uh, until they're 26. So I, I certainly could have uh, gotten a benefit from that if it were passed back when I was at, at Morehouse. That being also said is that it wasn't rolled out effectively, number one. So it's all in execution. And again, that goes back to one of the seven C's. So I'm, uh, you guys will appreciate this. If, if you read the book, it's concept to execution. That being said is that you really have to make sure that you execute very well. And the, the, the way in which uh, the ACA was rolled out back in, in 2011 was just really, really poor. Uh, and I think many will admit that. The other thing that we didn't do an effective job and I'm saying we as a healthcare community, as a healthcare leadership, did not do an effective job at communicating. And that goes to specifically to edifying. Back to my earlier point of the numerous times I've heard people say, don't mess with healthcare, but I don't like the government in my in my healthcare decisions, or don't mess with Medicare, but I don't like with the government in my in my in my healthcare decisions. We could have done a better job at educating and edifying the public on just what the ACA is working to do and trying to do. Uh, and I do think, you know, there's there's still uh, many, many states, I'm in one of them, that have not passed the, the the Medicaid expansion laws. So the the ACA is almost null, in fact, uh, when it comes to those types of decisions for states that have not have not passed it. So I say all that to say we haven't gone far enough. You know, Medicare for all is bastardized in this country. That that saying, that phrase has been bastardized for quite some time. Uh, but I do think there should be an examination of how Medicare can be expanded, not just Medicaid, but Medicare can be expanded to the masses, not just for those that are 65 plus in this country, because they certainly deserve it. They certainly bought into it and had paychecks taken, uh, you know, uh, their their income taken for it as they were working. But that also being said, we've got to make sure that that exists for more people so that currently the, the 19 million people that are still uninsured in this country, uh, which has certainly gone down since the passing of the ACA, they enjoy it too. The last thing that I'll say, Brian, is that indelibly there is a tie and a correlation to this country on who has health care insurance. And usually to your point, very cogent point, it's tied to your employer. If a person doesn't have a job or is unemployed, uh, now they can actually access the marketplace through the ACA. But we still have to, I think, disrupt the employer relationship uh, that exists for administering healthcare because that therein lies the access portion of it. And it goes to back to AEILU is that we need that access and it shouldn't just necessarily be designed by an employer and those decisions made by your employer, but actually made more holistically and personally by your, you know, the, whoever is makes the decision for the household or is running the family because healthcare is deeply, deeply personal. And those decisions should be kept at a personal level. The government should sort of serve as the platform, but certainly the personal part of all that, we should make sure that that remains personal and is a decision made up to you and your family. And I want to go back to the Affordable Care Act, and you mentioned the rollout. And during that time, you were uh, between uh, UC Health being the CAO, Chief Administrative Officer, and then being the president at Mercy Health East, which is in Cincinnati, Ohio. What were your observations, I guess, your personal experience of what you can share of the rollout of the Affordable Care Act? What would you say were maybe the misconceptions that you saw that were promoted versus the reality that you dealt with? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I think there are many 
misconceptions, um, and it goes back to a lot of what we've already discussed, is that healthcare is equitable, uh, is, is a mis- misconception and misperception. Healthcare is safe. It's also a misconception. That healthcare is laid by best practices, also a misperception. Healthcare is personal, and that's something that was that I realized just with the rollout. It varied on what I heard going from a very urban environment where I, where I led um, UC Health, which is the only uh, level one trauma in Cincinnati. And by way of making your audience know that that entity, it's tied to the University of Cincinnati. And it's actually where uh, one of the Buffalo Bills players was ta- were taken uh, after he had that traumatic DeMar experience Hamlin. to his heart. Damar Hamlin, absolutely. So, uh, so I had the privilege of running that facility. So you had that sort of that viewpoint. Uh, so I got that lens. And there was obviously a lot of excitement uh, about, particularly in Southwestern Ohio, about the ACA and what it could provide uh, specifically for underserved communities. And then I'll I'll also say underserved hospitals because, you know, through DISH programs and everything else, proportionate share and everything else, hospitals were also struggling to take care of those patients that did not have have insurance. So there was a lot of excitement in the air. But if you flip side that and you go, I don't know, to the east side of Cincinnati, which is probably 20 miles east, um, it's a very affluent community. And there was a lot of sentiment of, you know, do we really need the ACA? What's it actually going to do? Uh, Am I going to pay more taxes for it? Who's actually going to be coming into my hospital now? And I'm, am I going to be sitting next to a GSW and, and a mm-hmm. gunshot wound victim in the ED, emergency department? Sorry for all the acronyms. Seeing that disparity was eye-opening for me and trying to lead through that was something, again, that we talk a little bit more about in the book. And it goes, it speaks to sort of the, uh, the underlying current of the benefit and burden of a black healthcare executive, specifically in this country. Healthcare. It's a partisan issue, it seemingly has become. It's not a a partisan issue. It's really, you know, a power issue. Uh, You refer to healthcare in your book as the fountain of youth. Uh, And preventative healthcare truly is the fountain of youth because we're able to take care of ourselves. uh, And we're not getting the notice that we have diabetes or that we have asthma or that we have, you know, any of these conditions, but we're noticing, you know, the effects ahead of time. And that's another thing that the Affordable Care Act does. A lot of the prescriptions that people have uh, to prevent certain, you know, diseases, it allows them to do that and have it be covered by their insurance. Uh, And that's just to speak to some of the good. But do you think this will ever evolve beyond politics? Because it involves power, it involves politics. So do you think it will ever evolve beyond that and be more of a humanitarian cause? I don't think so, uh, at least not in my lifetime. And it's because, you know, people's perception is their reality. And it's, you know, healthcare again, is very, very personal. And it's, it's something that I've learned to not only appreciate, but succumb to during, you know, my leadership or within my leadership, I should say, within this industry. And I think because it's so personal that whatever your personal beliefs or our precepts are, you and whatever side of the fence, whether you're a Republican uh, or Democrat, or whether you're even independent or serve as an independent, you think about healthcare in a way that impacts you and it impacts your family. Uh, and I've also seen where those perceptions have changed. So, uh, you know, whether you are um, for abortion or not for abortion, whether you have a kid or you don't have a kid, whether you move from the south side of Chicago to the north side of Chicago, that 
those environs sort of seep into your perception uh, and you make that perception more of your reality and you tend to vote accordingly, right? Uh, because people don't vote based on what they, they sort of feel, but they really vote with their wallets. If there's anything that sort of impacts them, we want to make sure that we're trying to educate the, the public as much as possible about what healthcare is and what healthcare does. But because it has been so partisan, uh, and you saw this at the height of COVID with even the vaccinations, it became a political issue. Yeah. Uh, and it came, became a uh, political issue very, very quickly. So for those reasons, I don't think that it's it, it's going to change in the foreseeable future. But I do think as healthcare leaders, we have to speak out about what it is, what it can be, and how it will be beneficial for, for people in this country, particularly people of color. You spoke to some of the common fears as is referred to, you know, the ACA, uh, but they actually, you know, in my research, there's some of the same common fears people have around universal health care in general. You know, yes. uh, keeping costs down will reduce the standard of care. That's like the number one, you know, concern. Lack of competition will also reduce the standard of care. Waiting right. lists will be just as bad as the VA. I would ask if those fears are legitimate, but I would rather ask just in general how you could address the question of the of the standard of care. Uh, and you've handled, you know, being the chief executive, a lot of the concerns, concerns seem to be logistical. Can you speak yes. to that? Yeah, it, it, they are logistical in my mind, you know, and they can certainly be addressed, but it's, it's, they can't be addressed until you sort of peel away at what is actually a, a causing those, what's the actual cause or catalyst for those concerns. And I like to say all the time, like, we don't have a resource issue in this country. We have an allocation issue. And that, that allocation just has not, you know, I don't, I, I don't necessarily believe in trickle-down economics. That has not trickled down to uh, the people that need care the most, that are enduring, you know, four and five chronic diseases like diabetes and COPO, CPOD and CHF, congestive heart failure, et cetera. You know, those are the people that require those constant care, that constant intervention, that healthy disruption, if you will, that is needed. Those that have access and resources um, and have been allocated those resources usually don't even tend to use them. So there's there's tremendous opportunity, I think, to, again, educate the public on what that is. And to your point, it goes back to what the ACA, I think, was trying to do, and we just didn't do, do a great job at educating those facts. Um, so the standard of care, in my mind, uh, is where the government can play a role. But I also think through private capital, through investments and things of that nature, a higher level standard of care, a higher standard of care can be established because there are entrants into the healthcare space all the time. So you're seeing all these new companies, you're seeing private equity, you're seeing practice design and care delivery sort of change and evolve right before our very eyes. And that has to continue if we're in fact going to change and elevate the standard of care in the proper fashion. And then there are, to stay on that, that thread, there are some observed truths uh, you reveal about the healthcare industry in your book. Yes. You like dedicate, I believe, a whole chapter and you just go in and I, and it's uh, really insightful. <laughs> and the one that stuck out to me the most that I would love for you to speak to is a bit of a preview uh, is the claim that the healthcare industry is not as altruistic as it claims. Yes. So think about healthcare, not to go into a long soliloquy about you know, the healthcare industry and, and how it was founded. But essentially, healthcare was established in this country by Catholic nuns, you know, so that's how most hospitals were actually built and established uh, way back in the 16, 1700s. 
So that's sort of where it gets its its origins, right? If you peel again, peel back that onion, I should say, it begins to stink a little bit because uh, within healthcare uh, entities, there's a saying that says, no margin, no mission. Um, and that essentially says that we're in it while it might be a non-for-profit entity where we have may have a mission tied to a religious entity or, or institution in this country, call it the Catholic, the Lutherans, the Baptists, et cetera. And there's still a lot of hospitals that exist in this country that, you know, are tied to that. There is that underlying altruism that exists, right? Because we're mission focused, but regardless of its origins, it is, they're in it to make money. There's also a big sort of stuck, if you will, in this country of how much the interceptions, if you will, of the display of healthcare, I should say, and the the money that is exchanged oftentimes doesn't get in the right hands. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people getting rich in this country through healthcare. And like I I gave you this statistic earlier in the conversation, you know, $4.3 trillion spent. So people are are making a lot of money in healthcare, but yet hospitals are faced with 1%, 2% margins, operating margins, that just means they're they're only profitable by one or two percent, uh, oftentimes. So there's there's a lot of things that should happen in healthcare that isn't happening, and it's based on hey we're all, we're in it for the people we're we're trying to take care of all these people we're we're providing access, but really it's there's a lot of things to the mission that just don't coincide because if you're taking care of the masses or if you're really trying to be a staple in the community, you should be providing access to the entire community and not just a subset of those people that can pay, in my opinion. And now the era of COVID-19, it's fading. It's over, if you would ask me. Just in the way that we're functioning as a country, we really seem in 2023 to be kind of really coming out of the shell and walking away from it. And we're now living in the new normal. There is no more like establishing the new normal, like we're living in the new normal. And the pandemic opened our eyes. It exposed many deficiencies, as you would put it. But did we rise to the occasion? And what progress have you observed while also still, of course, pursuing better? Yeah, you know, I, I think if if we were to grade ourselves, and again, the we being the healthcare industry, Brian, I think we deserve an F, if maybe maybe a D minus, uh, if we were truly being honest with how we handled COVID. Uh, COVID literally almost broke the American healthcare system uh, because it it exposed all of the warts that healthcare houses and have housed for, for many, many years, decades. So we knew that there were tremendous disparities in healthcare and we don't have to go into that, but we know that uh, black people in this country are comprised about 12.7% of the population yet we contributed to 35% of the deaths uh, for COVID. So that disparity, inherent disparity is right there, just right before our very eyes. Um, that also being said, Black people more than any other population delayed their care. There are studies that show and indicate this, which obviously led to greater and exacerbated conditions that, that could have been avoided. Uh, but it, it goes back to that access issue because they didn't have insurance or they didn't, they were scared or they didn't know about what existed in the, the programs that existed through PPP and everything else that the government was actually trying to do to impact healthcare. The other thing that I'll say, and then I think why we deserve an F is while we increased, uh, I think, and, and accelerated the advancement of telehealth, uh, telehealth rose two years of COVID between 20 and 2022, 700%. So there was a 700% increase in the utilization of, of telemedicine. 
But that also being said, why do we have to wait for COVID to, to, to do that? You know, that, that would be my probably rhetorical question at this point. There's just tremendous things that I think we are now faced with. And, and I love the, the, the phrase new normal that you use because that in and of itself is an oxymoron. I don't know that you can have new and normal in the same sentence. But then, you know, we were so eager to get back to what we knew and what we thought was normal that we were pushing to get back to something that was already broken. So, and, 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 wow. and, and again, it goes, it goes back to sort of what we've been exposed to. And it goes back to not thinking, I hate this phrase, but I'll use it for lack of a better one, a lack of a better one. We weren't thinking outside the box on what healthcare could be. So we should have at that time when the healthcare system was almost broken in this society, we should have just broke it and then built it back better. And we did not do that. In my opinion, your book, healthy disruption, it, it truly serves as an introspection, a call to action a way to get a look into your life, into the history and the knowledge of the Black community, and, and really the opportunity we all have to be able to contribute to a better future, as I always say, to a, a better preferred future. Uh, to those listening to this who are white, <laughs> who are not Black, who are not, a, you know, they're, they're listening to this and they're kind of getting a really a submerge, a, a submersion uh, into this topic, uh, what would be your words of encouragement for them as they say, what can I do to make this better? What can I do to further help move this along? Because uh, I think one of the things I'm, I'm always struck by Dr. King, uh, we talked about, you know, his real platform, which wasn't just racism. I'll say it again. It was anti-poverty and anti-war but also him not demonizing white people. And I think white people right. can sometimes fall into that trap if they want to of like, oh, I'm being demonized. And and no, it, there's just a, 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 an occasion that you need to rise to. And so and what would be your encouragement to those individuals? Yeah, the, the encouragement is that, uh, and it speaks to, you know, what we talk about in the seven C's and the solutions are at least trying to provide some solutions for some of the ills that plague society. And society is only as good as its 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 weakest or most impoverished people, right? So we are trying to uplift as much as we can the people that don't have that access, the people that don't have that information, the people that don't have you know access to the, the capital and, and the money being spent uh, in this country, not only for healthcare but other industries as well. Uh, you know, for all the, of your art audience, your entire audience. You know, it's a, it's a it's an opportunity to partner. It's an opportunity to ponder. Uh, you said call to action. I think it's even you know I don't mean this in a negative way or in a pluralistic way, but it's almost a call for uh, confrontation because again we are trying to make sure that we are pushing and promoting change in this country as quickly as possible. And I get that you know it's a it's a it's a little bit radical, um, but in my mind there has to be some radicalism tied to change. Otherwise, it doesn't happen, and that's why we named the book Healthy Disruption. So please give it a read. Please give it thoughts. I'm mean, like I said, the biggest gift in in the human experience is is feedback. I love hearing feedback and I like having this exchange of information, uh, this discourse, because that's one thing that I also think is is lost is that it's taboo to talk about things where we don't agree. I actually think just the opposite. I think we have to talk about things where we disagree or we don't have the same views because that's what also going to be the catalyst for change as well. And then on a lighter note, uh, rumor has it you're an art lover. 
Tell us a bit <laughs> about your your passion for art in closing. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, it's become quite a pricey uh, hobby, if you will, because I, I literally go around the world to find different pieces, and uh, I just I what I what I love about it, Brian, more than anything, is that it can be interpreted in so many different ways. And it really speaks to who you are as a person. And if you ask a person what they see in a specific piece, uh, it could change day to day. It could change year to year. Uh, and it really helps promote and provoke thought uh, and even a conversation. So yes, I love uh, art. I love uh, African-American art in particular and uh, uh, starting to amass uh, quite a collection. So I uh, would love for you to see it sometime. <laughs> I would love to. Thank you all for joining this conversation and thank you to GIC for adding so much value. To purchase his book and connect with him, as always, check the show notes. And you know what I'll say next. See you soon. Whoa, whoa.